This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, hoping for more oil on global markets, President Biden will be traveling to Saudi Arabia. My guest says the president should go big or stay home. And voters are getting ready to head back to the polls for the midterm elections in November. While supply chain issues are top of mind for many people, a paper shortage could also disrupt the voting process. Then, in 2020, while the spread of coronavirus threatens the lives of millions of Americans, a team of government employees worked to stop another threat, fraudulent web pages from ISIS, claiming to sell protective equipment. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, This is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. The White House announced that President Biden will be traveling to Saudi Arabia in a few weeks. With gas prices near record levels, the president is looking for the Saudis to pump more oil. Here to preview that trip is Stephen Cook. He's a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. Stephen, welcome to the program. It's great to be here. Let's talk about oil and gas prices. How much can Saudi Arabia do to affect the prices Americans are paying at the pump? Well, in theory, Saudi Arabia has the most capacity to produce the most oil at the most price-efficient levels. However, it's the summer in Saudi Arabia, and the Saudis use a significant amount of their own production to air-condition Saudi Arabia, which is in a very hot part of the world. Um, So there are varying projections on what they can do. Some would say that they can put a million more barrels on 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 the market, which would do a significant amount to mitigate prices. Some have suggested, including the French president, that the Saudis are almost tapped out, and at most they could do is 150,000 extra barrels a day, which will not make a dent at all in the prices that Americans are paying at the pump. And if they are able to ramp up production, how quickly can they do it, and how quickly will that ripple effect into, into the markets? Well, in terms of bringing the oil onto the market, there's two problems. One, you have to get it onto the market. And two, Saudi Arabia has an agreement with OPEC and a group called OPEC Plus to slowly increase production during the fall. Um, Whether the president can convince them to break that agreement and flood the market is another story. So speaking diplomatically now about this trip, how should the White House balance the considerable human rights abuses that the Saudis carry out, including the murder of Washington Post reporter Jamal Khashoggi, that was in 2018, with these real needs of Saudi oil? It's very, very hard to balance our values with these very real needs like oil and security in the Middle East. What the uh, administration has been doing in the run-up to the trip has been speaking out on specific issues related to human rights in Saudi Arabia. That is something. It's certainly not going to be enough to satisfy the human rights community, given Saudi Arabia's long and a terrible record on human rights. But at least it's something. The real issue at the heart of this trip is oil, security, and perhaps the normalization of relations between Saudi Arabia and Israel. So let's talk about uh, security first. How important is Saudi Arabia to U.S. interests in the region? Well, the overriding interest for the United States in the region is the free flow of oil resources out of the region to the global market. And Saudi Arabia is the world's largest exporter of oil. We have committed to ensure the security of those flows. Therefore, Saudi Arabia and cooperation with Saudi Arabia in security is very, very important. 
obviously the U.S. and Saudi Arabia have a common threat, which is Iran's nuclear program. How should the U.S. approach that? What does Saudi Arabia want from the U.S.? Yes. Well, this is the perhaps the biggest security issue and a place where the United States and Saudi Arabia actually disagree. The Saudis were not uh, enthusiastic about the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal in 2015, and they haven't been enthusiastic about the Biden administration's efforts to try to get back into that agreement. What the president is likely to do under these circumstances is offer the Saudis a more robust American security guarantees in light of the Iranian threat. All right, so let's talk about those security guarantees. What is it that Saudi Arabia is looking for, and how likely is it? Well, the Saudis' opening bid is a NATO-like commitment that an attack on Saudi Arabia would be considered an attack on the United States. It's That's extremely unlikely. <laughs> we should take that off the table. What's more likely to happen is that the United States is going to, and is already participating in, a regional air defense system. Uh, that was recently revealed by the Israelis, that are, the Israelis are actually part of this with the United States. That includes the UAE and Bahrain and presumably uh, Saudi Arabia. There is a whole host of other things in terms of the integration of air defense, uh, consultations, training, weaponry that the United States can do to help secure Saudi Arabia. These are things that we're already doing, but the Saudi trust in the American commitment to Saudi security has been frayed over many, many years. What's happening with the war in Yemen and with U.S. arms sales to Saudi Arabia? Well, the good news is that a truce, a ceasefire rather than a truce, was agreed to in early April, and it has held, and it has been renewed, and it gives hope for a diplomatic resolution to the crisis in Yemen. All that said, the United States has been I should say ambivalently supportive of the Saudi uh, effort in its intervention in Yemen. Um, we have provided uh, direct intelligence, weaponry, and of course all of the equipment that Saudi air crews fly uh, are provided by the United States in that effort. So are those arms sales resuming? Do you expect them to? I mean, and how important is that to U.S. businesses? When President Biden came into office, he put a hold on about $500 million worth of equipment to Saudi Arabia that was going to be used in Yemen. Uh, that equipment has not been released to Saudi Arabia, but since then there have been two other pretty s significant arms deals with the Saudis. One is for air-to-air uh, -air missiles and the other is for a service contract. The Saudis would be unable to fly their air force without American contractors servicing that aircraft. Those are pretty big deals and they do overall contribute to the Saudi intervention in Yemen. You mentioned uh, Israel, and there was, of course, the Abraham Accords with some Arab countries, not Saudi Arabia. Where does that relationship stand? Well, in many ways, Saudi Arabia is a virtual member of the Abraham Accords. Uh, Israelis can fly on Israeli airlines from Dubai or Abu Dhabi directly to Israel over Saudi airspace. Um, the Saudis have given their okay for greater Emirati and Bahraini uh, security cooperation. What I think Biden is looking for in this trip is a more public step on the Saudi part towards normalization. I think Will that, that happen? Well, it's possible. It's something that has been discussed. It's something that the Saudis actually want to do. But the crown prince has been clear that the Israelis do need to make some steps towards the Palestinians in order for him to be more public about his normalization. All right, Stephen, nice to talk to you. Thanks so much for coming in. My pleasure. Coming up next on Government Matters, it's a problem many election officials are dealing with across the country this year, a shortage of paper. We'll discuss how this is impacting this year's midterms and how the federal government should respond. Stay with us. A recent report finds election officials across the country are struggling to make sure they get election materials in time. 
A big part of that issue is a nationwide paper shortage. Matt Weil is the director for at the Bipartisan Policy Center's Elections Project, which published the report. Matt, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. So what's driving the shortage of paper and why is it becoming harder to get in the U.S.? Sure, well, I think that like every other aspect of American life right now, elections are experiencing the many uh, supply chain issues uh, that other aspects of the, of the economy are experiencing. Paper has become a vital part of the elections process from you know sometimes being required for voter registration um, to the actual ballots themselves. And, and this isn't normal paper. You know, the paper that, that we use in the voting process is actually of a certain weight because it needs to be able to be counted and stand up for two years. And so the, the supply chain issues combined with the dramatic increase in need um, is causing some supply issues, either now in the primaries, but more likely in the fall. So beyond the ballot itself, uh, paper is used in elections. Other types of paper is, is also used. Can you talk about some of those things that, that paper is used for in elections? Yeah, so first it starts with voter registration forms. Many states have moved towards a more automated or online process, but not every state. And in states that require a more paper-based process, they typically aren't going to the local store and just getting reams of paper. They need a special type of paper. We saw this play out earlier this year in Texas, where a late change in their law required reprinting uh, voter registration materials, and it had to be on a certain weight of paper. And not having that paper available Cause some backups when voter registration was happening. So that's one area that was unexpected um, that has now impacted voters directly. And and drill down a little bit more on that um, that situation in Texas and other situations um, because your report does call out last minute legislative court mandated changes making it harder for officials to respond to those paper shortages. Yeah, that's that's a big concern that I have, especially for November. What we've seen in recent election cycles is either late legislative changes or, or more commonly, late legal changes. Litigation often kind of clusters near election day. And in years past, you know, while problematic because it does require late changes, late printing, reprints, that may not be possible this year. Election officials uh, tend to have two or three year contracts with paper vendors. Um, it has been a struggle for some of them to get all of those contracted materials. They may not have additional paper close to election day to make late minute uh, reprints. And so what we could end up seeing is places that have to use you know, stickers to cover up names that shouldn't be on the ballot anymore. Uh, and that could be problematic when it comes to counting because even with paper ballots, most of our counting is electronic. And to go through those high speed scanners, you just don't want to throw off the balance. And, and so that could be a, an issue that we see, again, much more likely in November than right now. So so what's the worst case scenario here? Uh, what could happen? I mean, could voters be turned away saying, we just don't have ballots for you? Or, or what could really happen? I don't think voters are going to be turned away. So I think voters you know, should still go to the polls and, and vote as, as needed. And what I do think is we've had a lot of situations over the past couple of years where minor hiccups in the elections, the voting process, causes missing disinformation. So I think trust in elections is already at a low after 2020, and certainly we have some of those same challenges. So if people are, are going to the polls and have to vote on a provisional ballot um, that eventually gets remade onto the right way to paper because they didn't have that paper at the polls, these are gonna feed into some of those missing disinformation. But longer term, the challenges are, are, are even greater. 
because you know the printing capacity, the paper mills in this country um, are kind of on a decline. There are many states that actually require paper that is milled in, in their own state, not even just this country. Those kind of laws are going to be um, ex extremely problematic going forward because um, it, it's a very clear trend line of access to paper in this country and paper production um, versus what, what uh, election officials need to conduct their election. So let's talk specifically about what you're recommending for the federal government, do, uh, government to do to alleviate that potential paper ballot shortage. Yeah, I mean, right now, when it comes to what the federal government can do, it's pretty simple and probably not surprising. The federal government needs to put up more money for elections. Uh, you know, for the most part, the federal government does not fund day-to-day -day election administration in this country. That's historically how it's been. You know, over the past 20 years, uh, the federal government has gotten a little bit more active in, in providing funding, but it's nowhere near sufficient. So for example, in the FY22 appropriations that, that happened earlier this year after the continuing resolution, they only provided $75 million to states. That's the entire country. So some states are gonna get $3 million to run, you know, from the federal government to run their elections. But that is not a level of funding um, that is going to allow for the democracy that Americans expect and, and deserve. Matt, is it too late at this point for the federal government to do what needs to be done to make those midterm elections run smoothly? I think certainly it is very late in the cycle. And the problem with, with the way the federal government has funded elections, even that it's you know kind of diminished capacity over the past five, six years, is that the funding often comes in election years. It comes in 2022, it comes in 2020 or 2018. By, by that point in the election cycle, it is late to, to have impact. I think on this specific issue, um, it'll still be important because what we've seen so far with paper this year, uh, the costs are up about 40%. So that means they have to spend 40% more than they expected in their budget on paper. And that leaves less money for things like poll worker um, you know, pay raises. Um, and we obviously know that poll workers are, are, are a problem as well. It's less money for um, making sure we have voter education and, and making sure voters know where to go. Uh, so I think they can backfill that and have an immediate impact in 2022, but at this point, you know, most of the funding that the federal government could appropriate um, would be impacted in 2024 or even more likely 2026. All right, Matt. Thanks so much for being on the program. Nice talking to you. Thank you for having me. Coming up on Government Matters, the team that was responsible for the largest ever seizure of cryptocurrency accounts used by terrorist organizations. We'll be right back. While people were scrambling to find face masks at the start of the pandemic, the Islamic State terror group was trying to scam Americans with a fraudulent website, claiming to have an abundant supply of masks. A team of federal agents uncovered the scheme, shut it down, and disrupted the financing network. Part of that effort was Kyle Armstrong, a former FBI special agent and a finalist for a Service to America medal. Kyle, welcome. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Terror groups are always fundraising, and if they can scam Americans, then all the better from their perspective. How widespread is the problem? How sophisticated are these terror groups in fundraising? Well, it's, uh, it's a very widespread problem, and it always has been. You know, going back um, uh, you know, a long time, these fundraising efforts are international in nature, and you know, the, the terrorist groups, just like any other criminal syndicate, evolves in the way that they are, they're fundraising. And so what we have done uh, at the, what we did at the FBI and with our federal partners, IRS, HSI, 
um, we try and track that and stay on top of it to make sure that we are um, have the tools available to disrupt and mitigate um, the, the the financing of these groups that are set about to try and, and hurt hurt people. So what tipped you off initially that the face mask site was actually connected to ISIS? Yeah, that's a that's a, a f sort of an interesting story. We had a case at the uh, the FBI and our counterparts going back a couple of years where uh, a woman was indicted, arrested and convicted of terror financing herself. She sent uh, she liquidated some virtual currency and sent the proceeds over to um, a known ISIS financier. That known ISIS financier eventually, uh, Marat Kakar, is who set up this uh, fraudulent website in order to um, defraud folks of the West and, and continue to fund ISIS. And so we had been uh, tracking sort of movements and tracking you know, the, the financing scheme. And as soon as the pandemic uh, got you know, into full scale and, and people, there was a bit of a panic uh, across the world uh, about acquiring uh, PPE, they took advantage of that. And so we saw it and immediately started working with uh, our partners and our, our strike force in DC to dismantle it before there were any large, um, large scale victimization of hospitals, charities, well, uh, let's let's talk about how you did that, Kyle. You know, once you identify this is a fraudulent website, it's connected to terror financing. It could be a Facebook page. What do you do to stop it, and and also try to get some of that money back? Uh, that's another great question. Um, you know, the first thing that we do was we went in and and uh, took a look at the actual site itself. Um, there were some promotional materials going on from bad actors, and so. Uh, it took a little bit of investigative work to figure out who exactly um, uh, was behind and, and was affiliated with running this site. Again, Mr. Uh, Kakar, Marat Kakar was uh, associated with it. And so uh, our, our partners and part of our strike force at uh, uh, HSI Philadelphia, Ryan Landers, who's one of the Sammy's Award no nominees also, uh, got in and, and arranged for some undercover communications. And once the undercover communication started, it was immediately apparent and uh, corroborated what we thought that this was a fraudulent site as um, they immediately moved communications to uh, an off-platform encrypted uh, application, unlike if you know you were on eBay or, or some other uh, legitimate site, they would you know take your order and would be happy to talk to you on the phone. Uh, Face Mask Center, immediately wanted to jump into, um, like I said, an encrypting messaging app and became very cryptic about where the source of, um, where the source of all the PPE was from, pointed us to a couple other websites, which we were able to go in, look at the back end, and determine that it also was, uh, were, were sham sites. Well, Kyle, uh, you know, the team was dubbed the Bitcoin Terror Takedown Team. And you mentioned working with other agencies like IRS. I believe you worked with DHS as well. Can you talk about that interaction and how that went along? Because I know that sometimes it's it's difficult to go across agencies and share sensitive information. Yeah, um, you know, fortunately, I was sort of uh, lucky to be a part of, you know, the best sort of uh, national security financing group of professionals probably in the country. 
And so it was centered around the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C., the Threat Finance Unit. And two of the prosecutors were probably the two best finance prosecutors in the country, Jesse Brooks and Zia Faruqi. And we then just sort of melded folks from many different agencies, not just IRS and FBI and HSI. We're also working with FinCEN, working with Maine Treasury, working with our intelligence community. And I think that that was what sort of made the group pretty special is there there really were no egos and there were no reservations about sharing um, all ideas and strategies and intelligence um, full bore. And that was what it was able to help us take down this site as well as a couple others. I think that um, a, a couple other virtual currency cases, uh, Bitcoin cases that were funding, you know, not terribly dissimilar to this one international terrorism funding, but that was using purely uh, virtual currency. And briefly, Kyle, is there any advice you can give people so that uh, so as not to get scammed by these websites and unwittingly end up funding terror groups? Yeah, I would say, you know, just do a little bit of homework. And so at the outset, when we saw, um, saw the website, we knew that it was associated somehow with uh, a known terrorist financier. But there were some obvious red flags when we first started the investigation, um, talking about how long that the business had had been uh, procuring PPE, which was easily verifiable and incorrect. Um, you know, when we started the communications, the red flag of "Hey, let's let's uh, take the chat to this encrypted app." That was a red flag, and then ultimately. You know, it's if it sounds too good to be true, maybe it is because there was such a scramble during that time period for gloves, masks, um, even full hazmat suits. And this site claimed to have essentially unlimited supply, whereas, you know. All right, group- Kyle. Well, we're out of time, but I want to thank you so much for being on the program. Yes, thank you very much, ma'am. I really appreciate it. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. You can reach us on Twitter at GovMattersTV. Follow us to get the latest updates, reminders, and links to our latest interviews. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the federal government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people, in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber, and, uh, and and satellite, of course. 
Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, 4, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.